This morning we're in Galatians 2, and we're going to look at the latter part of this chapter. We're going to look at verses 15 down to verse 21, Galatians 2, 15 to 21. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me there this morning. Galatians 2, 15 to 21. And before we read God's Word, let's again go to Him asking for His blessing on the preaching of His Word this morning. Um, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, they stay awake in vain. That's why we pray so much through this service. We are expressing dependence on God, not on our own abilities, for me to preach or you to listen. So pray with me this morning. Father, we do ask you to bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. We know that your word is what you have uh, begotten us to life with, that you have revealed Christ through the word, that you have instructed us, that your word is light and life, that the words that you have spoken, they are spirit and life, and yet, Lord, I do not have the resource to make your word effectual in my own heart, let alone in the hearts of these people here. We pray that you would look upon us as part of your covenant community, part of your church, And we pray, Father, that you would bless in a powerful way the reading and the preaching of your word. Remove distractions, remove anxieties, remove the burdens that we often bring to worship. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grant that light, that heavenly light that you give, that you would lead us and guide us to your temple. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes these words, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died, literally, in vain. If justification is through the law and through your works, then Christ died for nothing in vain. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word this morning. Well, though this may be dangerous, this week I was using a bit of sanctified, hypothetical imagination, and I thought about the Apostle Paul having just finished the book of Galatians, living in the 21st century and going to see a mainline Christian publishing company and taking Galatians. I mean, never do it because it's God's word and it's authoritative and binding when it comes off the pen of Paul. But Paul goes into a mainline Christian publishing company with Galatians and he sits down and one of the executives comes in and he says, Paul, you know, have a seat, Paul. And he says, I've read the first two chapters of your book and um, there's a lot of good stuff in there. No, it's not the most well-written, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. I do have three small criticisms before we could publish this. The first criticism I'd say is sometimes you just come across a little too polemical, a little too argumentative. You need to be a little more winsome in your argument. 
And then, secondly, Paul, I think sometimes you're just too theological. Sometimes you're hard to understand. You're, you're, you're very theologically compact in what you're saying, and, and most people, they're not going to get that, Paul. And then, third, the, the only other criticism I have is that you, you just don't give us enough practical how-to, here, go do this, here's some practical ten steps to fix your Christian life. And the reason I thought about that is because I think if Paul were to write Galatians today and it were to sit in a Christian bookstore, it would probably not be bought by many people. It would probably be read by just a few of the people who actually bought it. It would be understood by less and it would probably be complained about by others in the evangelical world. Because those criticisms, those hypothetical criticisms I raised, really could be leveled against Paul. Paul... uh, Cuts to the chase. Paul confronts Peter for denying the gospel. Paul withstands, one apostle withstands another apostle to his face over his denial of the gospel. Paul's not winsome. Paul's not concerned about people liking him. He's not concerned about getting a hearing. He's not concerned what people think he's concerned about pleasing God. He said at the beginning of this epistle, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through God and Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. And then Paul will say, I didn't receive my gospel from men, and I'm not seeking to please men, because if I seek to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't serve men and Christ. You can't please men and say things that men want to hear, so men will like you and please Jesus. You can't do it. And so that first criticism would be unjustified, because Paul has already told us why he has to deal the way he has to deal. And then that second criticism that Paul is sometimes too theological, too meaty, too much. People are choking on the theology in Paul's epistles. Well, I take great comfort in the fact that the Apostle Peter, who Paul withstood to his face at the end of his life in his second epistle, said, Paul wrote many difficult things that are hard to understand, that unstable and untaught men twist to their own destruction. And so if one apostle would think that another apostle's writings were difficult, I take comfort in that. It's an unjustified criticism to say Paul's too theological. And then third, and I think the greatest criticism is, why don't you give me a little something to take with me? Give me a little something more practical. I mean, you just give me all this doctrine all the time. Paul, you're always telling me Jesus did this and Jesus did that. And it's not through this, but it's through this. And and all these things that I have to really think about and I have to work and wrestle to apply to my own life. Why don't you just do it for me? Why don't you just keep it simple, Paul? I think that last criticism we're going to see this morning is unjustified because it's not what we do. It's not what we do that restores us to intimate fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. It's what he has done for us. And Paul is going to remedy the problem, the legalism in Galatia, the people who are saying you need Jesus plus law keeping. You need Jesus plus good works to be justified. And Paul's going to say, oh, no, no, you need Jesus and what he's done and you need union with him and you need to know what has happened. You need to know the facts of history. You need to know the facts of the history of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And it's remarkable. Paul doesn't say one thing about what you need to do other than believe, other than believe in these verses. We're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see first um, Paul again highlighting the problem in Galatia, Paul attacking, as it were, the problem in Galatia. Second, Paul giving a theological explanation of the law and the gospel. And then the third, we're going to see Paul giving um, the solution, which is found in Jesus Christ. So the problem, the theological explanation, and the solution. We'll notice in verses 15 through 17, again, Paul is going to say to Peter, he's going to say, look, Peter, we're Jews. 
So the problem in Galatia was a distinctively Jewish problem. The Jews were saying, yes, if you want to be a real Christian, you need Jesus, plus you need to be Jewish and you need to keep the law because God's not going to accept you unless you're a law keeper. Unless you're good enough, yes, you need Jesus, but unless you're good enough, God won't accept you. And now, Peter's a Jew, and Paul's a Jew, and everybody else there's a Jew except for Titus and the Gentiles that have been excluded from table fellowship. And Paul confronts Peter and he says, look, Peter, we're Jews, We are Jewish, and we know that no one was ever justified by the works of the law. We know that the law was never meant to justify. All 613 commandments that God gave Moses were never meant for people to try to keep to save themselves, ever. But the natural man always tries to keep the law, to try to be a good enough person. 51%, maybe God will let me in. God says, all the law, perfectly, in all of its fullness, or you are under a curse. Paul's going to pick up on that. And so Paul says to Peter, he says, Peter, we're Jews. We know that no one was ever justified by works of the law. We know that that was never God's intention, but it was always faith in Jesus. So how does Paul know that? Well, he'll go into Abraham in the next chapter. And he'll say the very first Jew, the very first Jew who ever lived was Abraham. And he lived 430 years before the law was ever even given. And he was justified by believing what God said to him. God said, I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the first Jew believed and was accepted because of the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul's going to say, Peter, we know that men are not justified by what they do, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we who have believed in Jesus know that we're justified by faith and not by what we do, because by what we do, the works of the law, what we do, no flesh will be justified by God. You know, the insult that the Judaizers and Peter were actually showing the Gentiles by not having table fellowship with them, that was actually not the greatest offense going on. The greatest offense was that they were pulling down God's law to a somewhat attainable self-righteous standard as if they could actually keep it. And they were actually offending the infinitely perfect God who requires absolute perfection. God requires perfection. God requires that his law be kept perfectly. If it's broken in one point, James says all of it's broken. And so Paul is saying to Peter, look, nobody was ever justified by works, always through faith, always through Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul now addressing and confronting, that's the heart of the epistle, verses 15 through 17, he is attacking the very problem by saying it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's not going to say it right here, but it is interesting that the only person who ever did keep the law was Jesus the one that justifies us by faith. He's the only one that ever could keep the law because he's God and man. He didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have corruption. He obeyed that law. He gained a righteous status so that anybody that trusts in him gets that. That's justification. As soon as you trust in Jesus, God sees you as perfectly righteous. Now, the question, Paul's going to anticipate. Maybe you're asking it. Well, you're saying you can do whatever you want and live any way you want. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're accepted as righteous. And Paul will go on to say, and you will, by the way, live a life of faith that will produce holiness in your life. Here's the paradox. Let me say this as we come to the theological construct that Paul uses. Here's the paradox. If you trust in what you do, if you think you're good enough, you're going to keep living a life of sin. 
because there's no power. So if you trust in your works, you're always going to fail time and time and time again. But if you cast your works off, put them in a big heap, a big dung, dung heap over here, as one Puritan said, and you just throw it all in there and you flee to Jesus, you not only get accepted by faith alone, but you also get united to Jesus Christ and you have power to live out a life of godliness. And, and frankly, Christians who trust Jesus actually do run the course of God's commandments by faith in him. And so that's, that's the paradox. Trust in yourself, you get nothing. Trust in Jesus, you get everything. But you're accepted. You're accepted. God accepts you once and for all. Not by anything that you do. The moment you believe you're accepted once and for all, you can never lose that acceptance. Once you are legally justified, I don't know if any of you watched the Casey Anthony trial. I'm sure some of you did. Whether she was innocent or not, when the verdict was pronounced, not guilty, Casey Anthony is not guilty. Now, you can say, wait, she's probably guilty. Maybe some of you would say that. I just did. Oops. Um, You may say that. But in the legal court, she is not guilty. She's not going to be punished in this life for any crime. She has been judged not guilty. In God's court, because Jesus Christ fulfills the law and takes the punishment, we are pronounced by faith in him not guilty. And it's a just verdict. Even though we are guilty, it's just because he does what we can't do and takes the punishment that we deserve. Paul's going to come to that next week. But for now, let me just say that Paul attacks it straight on, says what justification is, what it's not, what it is, what it's not. And then Paul goes into this theological explanation. This is where Paul gets really tough. I think Peter may have been reflecting on a passage like this, perhaps. Because in verse 17 and 18, what Paul says is not very easy. Notice the language he uses. He says, In verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we were found to be sinners, is Christ therefore a servant of sin? What in the world does that mean? If while we're seeking to be justified in Christ, we're found sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Well, there's about 200 explanations of what Paul actually means here. But here's what I think he means. Look back in verse 15. He says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So if you were a Jew in the old covenant, the way you would look and speak of Gentiles is their sinners were not. That's, that's what they were called. They're the sinners. We're the covenant people. So Jews look down at Gentiles and the name they applied to them, they're sinners. We're God's people. And so what Paul is saying, I think, is to Peter, If while we're endeavoring to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ therefore a servant of sin? Paul's actually destroying paradigms. He's saying, look, Peter, you live like a Gentile by faith in Christ. You're not under the law. You're not trying to keep the law. You know the gospel. You've been delivered by Jesus by faith alone. That puts you on the same standing as Gentiles that other Jews call sinners. Now listen very carefully. Because then Paul's going to say, if then we really are found to be sinners is Christ a minister of sin. Now, what Paul is saying is, look, Peter, Jesus has delivered us, forgiven us, cleansed us, empowered us, and justified us by faith alone. And our lives have reflected the redemption that we've experienced. And we're not living openly sinful, rebellious lives. And Paul's saying, so if that happened to you, and yet now you're saying Gentiles are still sinners, and you're still applying that tag to them, even though you live like them, is Christ a minister of sin? It's a a hypothetical, blasphemous question. Is Christ then serving sin? Is is he saying, okay, you know what, I'll free you, go live any way you want. That's, That's what Paul's getting at. And then notice what Paul says. 
For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the legal system. If I build again the whole mosaic system, what was torn down, what I tore down, the apostles tore it down by revelation of God, if I rebuild it again, I will be found a transgressor. I think what Paul's saying is, if you try to add anything to Jesus, you actually are an unregenerate sinner. And if you, if you don't add anything to Jesus, you actually are his people and you are justified and you're accepted by him. And so there's a paradox, there's a switch. The Jews thought they were the people of God because they were self-righteous and the Gentiles were sinners. But Paul's actually saying, whoever has faith in Jesus, they are actually righteous and everybody else is a transgressor. And if we rebuild a system, if we rebuild something that had no power in it. Now, I know this is very hard for us because we're like, okay, I've never lived under the Mosaic legislation. I've never had to celebrate a feast or a festival. I've never had to do any of this. What good is this to me? Let me bring it home. If you practice any man-made traditional religion, any human commandments, if you add to the Bible anything, And you're trusting in those things, you're doing the exact same thing. You're doing the same thing. If you add any human tradition to the Bible, you're doing the same thing that the Jews were doing. Exactly the same. Now, that means we have to be very careful. We have to know God's word carefully. We have to understand the theology of God's word. We have to understand the purpose of the law. Because that begs the question, if God was just going to do away with that whole legal system, why did he do it in the first place? Why did he do it? Why, why have all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of living under this legal system for his people? Well, Paul is going to tell us. Notice what he says. In verse 19, he says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What Paul is giving is he's giving the purpose of the law. He's saying, look, the purpose of the law was to come in and to crush you and to and to stand over you. Uh, John Bunyan, you guys know this, I've used this a lot, the mountain, he comes to the foot of the mountain, and it's Mount Sinai, and it's smoking, and there's lightning, and he's terrified, and he feels that it could crash down and fall on him and kill him. That's what the law is supposed to do. The law, do this, thou shalt not, thou shalt, you will, you must, if you do this. All of those statements are to come down on your conscience crashing down and the purpose of them though they're not bad in themselves we're sinful the purpose is that they would crash down and they would crush you under the weight of something you can't do so that you would flee to christ and interestingly the curse that they held out if you broke that the curse they held out killed christ that curse fell on jesus the mountain fell on jesus at calvary and so paul can say i through the law died to the law because the law put christ to death it was the law that nailed him to the tree. It was the commandments of God that were broken. It was the demands of God. It was the curse of God hanging over us that fell on Jesus at Calvary. Look, that's why Jesus wore the crown of thorns. I want you to think about this. Thorns and thistles filled the earth when Adam sinned. That was the very first thing that happened. The ground out of which man came the ground out of which God had made man and from which man rebelled, produced thorns and thistles. I don't know about you, but I hate weeding. I hate weeding. I hate gardening. I don't find it therapeutic to pull weeds and to get cut by thorns. 
And I know that that's not good. And all the science in the world and all the scientists and all the evolutionary biologists cannot explain to me thorns. They can't. They can't. But the Bible says that's a result of the curse and that Jesus wore that on his head at Calvary. That he is the sin bearer. That he takes the curse of the law on himself. That he bears that in full. That the law comes and it crushes Jesus Christ. And it should crush us spiritually and drive us to him so that we receive the blessings of the covenant in him. We'll come to that next week. Let me just point out that what Paul is doing is he's saying the law was never meant to save, it was meant to destroy. It was meant to destroy us spiritually, to show us our depravity, to drive us to Jesus so that we might live to God. And finally, and here's where I want to focus our time, Paul gives the great remedy. This is really the crescendo. Notice what he says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, look, I came to Christ because Christ died for me and I died with him in union with him. He tells us the fact of history. He, t- he tells the Christians there in Galatia, the way to be spiritually restored to Christ is to remember what Christ did for you at the cross. Look, if you're struggling with sin in your life, if you're struggling with sin, if you're living in sin, men, if you're looking at pornography, women, if you're looking at other women and wondering why you're not as pretty or struggling with eating disorders or any kind of sin, anything, anything out there, Remember what Christ did in history. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. The remedy is to remember what Christ has done in history. I've been crucified with Christ. The old man, the old nature, the sin nature, the flesh has been crucified with Christ. And then Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He now gives us a fact of experience. It's no longer I who live now, but Christ lives in me. How is it that we can be free from the the laws? Because Christ lives in us. Listen, if God indwells your heart by the Spirit, you don't need to be under a yoke of bondage, driving you, telling you you need to do more and try harder. You have the living Christ indwelling you. Jesus in um, John 14 through 16 promised to send the helper, the comforter, another helper. He is the helper. He said another helper. And he said to the disciples, he said, He will be with you, and he tells them, he has been with you, you know him. And Sinclair Ferguson points out, I think very wonderfully, that what Jesus is saying is that the whole time that Jesus was with the disciples, they were seeing the the life of the Spirit of Christ exhibited in him. Everywhere that he walked, everything that he did, everything that he said, they were with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus said that he will come to you. He will come to you. I will send him to you. That Christ would come by the Spirit and he would inhabit the hearts of his people, that he would control them, that he would fill them, that he would be united to them, so that it is actually better, Jesus says, that I go away. Because if I don't go away, he won't come to you. But if I go away, he will come to you. And now that means that it's actually better for us to be indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus than to actually have been with Jesus like the disciples physically because we are not just with the Spirit. We actually have Christ indwelling us. Each one of us, the Holy Spirit indwelling each believer everywhere across the face of the earth. Right now, there is an army of heaven 
all across the face of the earth of believers that God has justified and saved, and they're all, every one of them, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Every one of you can say with Paul, if you're a believer, I've been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live, Christ lives in me. And then he gives us, finally, he gives us a fact a fact of faith. Notice this. He says, In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. So the Jews were basically saying to, to Paul and Peter, they were saying, you need Jesus and you need your works. And they were then saying, if you say it's by faith alone, then you're saying you can go on sinning. You can live like the Gentiles. You can live sinfully. And Paul is going to say, here's the remedy. I died with Jesus, he lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The same faith that justified when we believed in Jesus now sanctifies us. It's the same faith. We don't believe one day, we don't believe, we don't repent and believe one day and then stop believing in Jesus. The same faith that justified us is the same faith that carries us through life. We continue believing in Jesus. We continue looking to him. We continue abiding in him. We continue, and notice the language Paul says, the life that I now live in the flesh. What Paul is denoting is that there's a war at work. This is Romans 7. He's saying there's a life I live in the flesh with all of the powers of the world crashing in on me, all the corruptions of my heart still bubbling up, and that life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That it's faith that overcomes. It's Christ who overcomes. It's faith laying hold of Jesus. And so, Paul doesn't actually give a ten-point step to restoration. He says, look, here's what you need to know. Christ died. I died with him. Christ lives in me. He indwells me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in him. And that he is sufficient for all of life. I think that oftentimes we have too low a view of who Jesus Christ actually is. I think even we who admit, I believe he's God. I believe he was man. I believe he was God and man and one person. Two natures, one person forever. I think sometimes we who believe, I know he died for my sins. Kind of what we heard earlier about thinking of Jesus as just what he did and he's coming back. We forget the life that we live now, today. We live by faith in the Son of God. And that really makes the Christian life not easy, but simple. I, I want to say this as clearly as I can as we close this morning. Paul may have a lot of very difficult theological constructs, and he does. And we need to grapple with them. We need to grapple with them. And, I, and we may not be right about all of them. But the gospel is very simple. The gospel is very clear. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was raised from the dead. And Paul's remedy to the legalism in Galatia is very simple. I was crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in him. It's a very, that's union with Jesus. It's pretty basic. Union with Jesus. It doesn't make the Christian life easy. But it's simple. And we are not to be moved away from that. Listen, wherever you are in life, because I don't know where all of you are spiritually in life, I know that Galatians 2.20 is the remedy for every problem in your life. What if, what if somebody could say to you, I've written a book and it'll solve all your problems. Paul's done that. He's given you one verse. He has, in Sinclair Ferguson's word, given you the entire Christian life in a single sentence. 
He has simplified it. It is faith, union with the Son of God who loved you, who loves you, and gave himself for you. You know, I think when we forget, when we forget the simplicity of the Christian life, faith in Christ, we're forgetting the love of Christ. We actually don't believe that Christ loves us. We actually think we've got to somehow gain his love. I've talked to the men recently about this. If your life is a life of he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, chances are good you're not grounded in what Paul is saying here. We are constantly to be preaching these things to ourselves. Interestingly, it's one of the only times Paul ever uses the first person personal pronoun I. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I think Paul is saying, now you take those verses and you say the same thing. You put yourself in that I and that me. You preach that to yourself. You believe that for yourself. You hold on to that and meditate on that and look at it from every angle and marvel in the love that Jesus had. How could, lo- how could Jesus love a filthy, murderous sinner like Paul? What kind of lawkeeper was Paul? This guy was trying to keep the law. And he was murdering Jesus' people. And yet he said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I hope that you will go back over these things and I hope that you will continue to believe in Christ. I think that's, that is a pastor's greatest burden for his people is that you would not just believe on Jesus once, say that you believe on Jesus, that you would continue to believe in Jesus, that the life that you live in the flesh, you would live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these marvelous words. I, Lord, I'm at a loss to believe them. in their just fullness and majesty and at a loss in proclaiming them to your people as they ought to be proclaimed, I pray that you would send your spirit to take your word and to drive it deep within our consciences, our minds. Father, cause us to delight in these things. Cause us to hold fast to Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have died with you, that you live in us, and that we live our life by faith in you. pray that you would establish each one here, young and old, that you would establish us in the simplicity and the power of the gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen.